0: Okay, our New Testament reading today is found in Revelation chapter 12. And I'll be reading the whole chapter for us this morning. Revelation chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time the serpent poured woman sorry, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Morning, everyone. For those uh, who have not had a chance to meet yet, my name's uh, Johnny. I'm a, a member of our congregation here at St. Joseph's. And I'm not sure what you expected on this uh, October Sunday morning when you came down to the half-nine service at St. Joseph's. You know, these half-nine services before a family service they give us an opportunity to look at something a bit different, don't they? So maybe you thought we're going to get a nice psalm this morning or maybe a lovely bit of encouragement from from Paul or, or maybe a baby trying to eat dragons and war in heaven and a woman with stars on her head and wings. So that's what I'm talking about, and you might think, why? So let me give you a little bit of context for this. As a context, I received a text from Ken in August, a couple of months ago, about speaking at this morning service, and at the time, I was away on house party, which is our our fabulous week away that we run for youth across our family of churches. And the theme of our week was revelation, all the juicy bits included. So Ken suggested, well... Why don't you bring a bit of house party flavor to a Sunday morning? And so here we are, Revelation 12 on a Sunday. I'm not sure if this is a part of the Bible that you've ever spent a lot of time in previously. But just as a starter for 10, let me tell you that Revelation is a book of the Bible which consists of a series of insightful visions given to a writer called John. Revelation chapter one, verse three, it tells us us that this is a book not to confuse us or to frighten us or to make us wonder what on earth is that all about? But instead, it is a book given to bless us. It says, blessed is the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. So as we read and hear, let's pray that God will be blessing us this morning as we read and we hear and we think about the meaning of this prophecy. Because what we get when we study this passage a bit closer is a series of three visions or a series of three signs which help us to understand Satan's three big battle plans as he seeks to undermine the authority of God and replace him as the ruler of all things. Enough introduction, allow me to pray for us before we get stuck in. Father God, thank you that you give us this part of the Bible to bless us. Help us to understand what this part of the Bible shows about you and about us. And help us to be encouraged by all that you have done to defeat the plans of Satan. And help us to be ready to play our part in the battle that carries on still today. Amen. Okay, so let's uh, get straight in and have a look at Satan's battle plan, number one, and that is to get Jesus. So look down with me. At the start of this chapter, we have the first of three signs or pictures or visions that appears. And it says, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. This first picture in particular, we shouldn't get too bogged down in in trying to work out exactly who it is. It doesn't correspond to exactly one Bible character. Instead, this first vision, this first sign, is intended to symbolically represent God's people throughout history. And at this stage in particular in the vision, she's representing God's Old Testament vision. A link we can see there is the 12 stars matches the 12 stars in Joseph's vision of the tribes of Israel way back in the book of Genesis. But then very quickly, uh, another sign comes, and this one is even more frightening than the last, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns, and on his heads, seven diadems. If we add all the kind of little symbolic pictures there, this dragon represents one who causes strife with authority and power and and rule. And if you add all those characteristics together, who do you get? Well, you get Satan. And I say that a bit frivolously, but in fact, when we look, Satan's intentions are anything but jokey. Have a look down uh, with the second half of verse 4 with me. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. This chunk is pretty grim reading, isn't it? It begs the question, I think, why does this dragon fear this baby so much? Uh, We can only really answer that question with a little bit of of hopping around the Bible uh, to see how this fits together. So we can see in verse 9 that when Satan is cast down to the earth, he takes the form of a serpent. And if we jump back to to Genesis chapter 3, it'll be on the screen behind me, uh, as well as in our Bibles, as we did in our our first reading, Uh, we see the reason why this Satan fears this baby so much. We're going to jump ahead to verse 15 of that chapter, where God pronounces judgment on Satan the serpent for the lies that he's told the humans. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. God is telling Satan that the day is coming where you are going to be defeated. Your head is going to be crushed. The offspring of this woman, be that Eve, or be it Mary, or be it all of God's people through the Old Testament, ultimately will crush you. So he's there crouching, ready, waiting to pounce. He's ready to do anything that he can to stop the God baby becoming the God child, becoming the God man and eventually the God dying on the cross. And if we think our way through the gospel narratives, we can see how that was true. How he does everything he can to try and stop Jesus. So he tries to have him murdered by command of Herod just after he was born. But God warns Joseph in a dream and they fled. Or they cross paths years later in the wilderness. And he tries to tempt him to take the easy way out and bypass the cross on his way to glory. But Jesus stands resolute. He even tried turning one of the Lord's own disciples against him. But in the end, that became the final link in the chain that sent him to the cross, the one place Satan just did not want him to go. And how does it all end? Well, in verse 5 of our passage today, it says, the child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus ascends back to heaven and is now ruling and reigning. You might wonder why there's not a bit more detail about that whole process in this passage. Instead, that whole part of the gospel story is just described as Jesus being snatched up to heaven. But actually, in this book already, that's been covered in incredible detail in chapters 3 and 4. So Satan's big battle plan A, to get Jesus, proves to be a complete failure. So let's carry on with Satan's second big battle plan as we move on in the passage, which is to get God. I call this plan B, but in some ways, you know, this is in fact the first plan which is shown through all the others. But I've kept it this way so that we can work through the passage in order. So have a look down with me to verse 7 there. It says then, although actually, chronologically, this probably takes place before Jesus, at the very start of all history. This plan becomes pregnant at the very beginning of time, as it were. It says... So what do we see here? Well, we see a great battle, a war, in fact, in heaven between, on the one hand, Michael, who we read in the book of Daniel, described as a great prince who leads the angels loyal to God, and on the other hand, the dragon, Satan, and the angels loyal to him on the other. Elsewhere in Revelation, in in chapter 9, we see Satan described as a fallen star, and in verse 4 here, a third of the angels fall with him. But the angels loyal to God are victorious and Satan is hurled to the earth, linking again to how we saw him portrayed as a serpent in the Genesis account. It is this decisive victory from the angels loyal to God which establishes the balance of power firmly in favor of of us firmly in favor of Christ which we then see played out in the rest of the Bible and especially in the gospel accounts. In fact in the gospel, in the the book of Mark when Jesus explains how can he cast out demons, how can he cast out the devil, he explains no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man to be clear Satan is the strong man But his power, while not yet eliminated, is bound by the greater power of God. So, plan A, get Jesus, big failure. Plan B, get God, even bigger failure. Well, if you look down at verse 12, you can see Satan is pretty wound up and furious. Verse 12, he knows his time is short. He knows his complete defeat and destruction is on the horizon. It is nigh. So like a fish that flails around with the last of his energy, Satan lashes out on his final plan, which is to get you. Despite defeat after defeat and frustration after frustration and being hurled down, and the knowledge that his eventual fate is doom, despite all of this, we see Satan keep on going by pursuing the woman. So don't forget, the woman represents God's people, i.e. the people of the Bible, the people of church history, now us. Uh, An analogy for this is maybe a little bit like the closing stages of the the Second World War. D-Day has been fought and won, and the Allies advance from the West and through Italy and Africa and from the East through towards Berlin. The the decisive balance of power has been shifted. It's only going to end in one way, but, but did Hitler just surrender and give up? No. Instead, he pours all of his energy into a final battle, the final battle at the Battle of the Bulge, even though any small victory there would just delay the inevitable. Just look with me here at, at verse 12 and verse 13. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So this is not a dragon chasing an actual woman, but instead represents Satan's pursuit of the people of God, uh, of you and me. And actually, if we look closely at this passage, we can see what Satan's tactics are. As he does that, look down at verse 10, where he is described as the accuser. Likewise, in verse 15, when the serpent spews up a river, it's actually a river of deceit and lies that attempts to wipe the woman away. This works in in three ways. Firstly, he had accused us in front of God, saying things like, How can you possibly think these people are worth saving? Have you not seen them as if they're worth the effort? Just get rid of them. But we can have confidence. We know the response that God gives to this. His love, his covenant are secure and Satan is cast aside. Or he accuses our minds that we are wrong about God. He tells us that he can't be trusted or that he doesn't answer prayer or just doesn't know what he's doing and his final method is even more subtle and potentially deadly he accuses us in our conscience he capitalizes on us in our darker moments and creeps up on us and says things like ha you call yourself a Christian when you've just done that look at you you are a failure just give up I wonder when you think of Satan, what you think of, you know, hunky guy maybe, big and red, pointy mustache, trident, a supernatural beast with earth-shattering powers. Well, in fact, this passage shows us that his strength lies in his subtlety. A few whispering accusations, softly but slowly undermining the confidence and faith of believers. So how does God respond to this battle plan? He does so by offering his care and protection and a guarantee of the survival of the church. We see in verse 14, the woman is given the wings so she can fly into the wilderness. This picture should make us think back to the Old Testament and Moses and God's people being taken care of by daily deliveries of manna hopefully you can maybe see some parallels there between their situation and ours how the wilderness was a time of preparation how they hadn't yet reached their final destination yeah just like just like we haven't you know one of the things we've seen in our studies midweek at the moment in the book of 1 Peter is how that we are exiles we are in the wilderness we are awaiting our final heavenly heavenly destination And that the wilderness can sometimes be a place of testing and hardship. Just like life for us now as Christians can be a place of testing and hardship. But also a place where we can experience God's care and love. Just look down with me again there to verse 14. It says, The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and time's and half a time you might be confused by the bit about time there the the time there which represents three and a half years or earlier on is described as uh, 1260 days elsewhere it's described in revelation as 42 months it basically represents the rest of human history we shouldn't be counting down the days the rest of human history from the ascension to the end of time in this time period the church will ultimately in a big picture sense be secure and survive I think this should convince us therefore of two things, firstly if we're we're buying the claims of new atheists like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens that religion will eventually die out and the society will uh, shake itself free of some kind of God delusion then this passage is all bad news for that viewpoint Instead, this passage convicts us that the worldwide Christian church will never die. Its eternal security has been guaranteed by God himself. But secondly, we should notice that that guarantee is not offered to any other human institutions, be that Newcastle United or or, or my favorite Sunderland football club or the British Empire or United Kingdom or, or, or European Union. No other institution is guaranteed to last forever. And therefore, we've got to proportion the amount of meaning and faith and confidence we place into these institutions. History shows us that kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Only the church, with Christ as its head, has eternal security. That security of the church as a whole, however is no guarantee of the peaceful existence of any individual member. And we see that work out in practice when we look at the world, don't we? Whether that's Christian friends who are painfully pulled away from the gospel because they're distracted by lies about themselves or about God or about the world. And we see it in the opposition that the gospel faces both in our society and in the world. And sadly, nor is it a guarantee that the church will be a perfect institution. And when we look at the church throughout history and we look at the church today, unfortunately, all too often, our ideas and the idea of of many, of society, of what the church is like, is clouded by the sinfulness of its members. And ultimately, that comes back to me and it comes back to you, doesn't it? Being too self-conscious to have that awkward conversation or too selfish to do that job that needs doing or too proud to put God's commands in front of my own ideas. As an organization built out of and built for sinners, we can't be surprised that the church gets it wrong. But it's important that we don't lose faith in the God-given power and the job that the church receives that we see here. Nor should we judge Christ on the behavior of Christians so how do we respond to these battle plans well we better get ready with our own shouldn't we so let's look down at verse 10 and verse 11 to see our three weapons in the battle to overcome satan so firstly we read of the blood of the lamb our ultimate weapon in this battle the foundation of all of our plans This phrase here gets us thinking all the way back to the cross and back in particular to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 where we see how Jesus redeeming death on the cross is the only thing that can bring us back to God. It is the blood of the lamb that means we can have confidence to ignore Satan's false accusations towards us. When he tells us lies, we can say to him, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Our plan A, when Satan reminds us of our guilt, well, we, we remind him of God's forgiveness. I've been really struck by the implication of this for our thought life. Instead of blindly accepting the accusations of our conscience, we, we, we don't sometimes realize that our conscience can tell us lies. But instead, we must, as Paul describes it, take every thought captive and examine it against the measuring stick of God's truths and the gospel. As I say, as I've come back to this passage, looped round on it a second time in preparing for today, I've been struck by this even more, how actually we have a responsibility to speak the gospel truth to ourselves just as we would to a Christian brother or sister. Our second weapon, our second battle plan is the words of their testimony, i.e. God's truth. Every time we speak about God's words and deeds, we overcome Satan. He hates what we are doing here. And this is one of the reasons why having things like memory verses up our sleeve can be such, such a useful thing to do. So that when we're faced with a situation of temptation or frustration or desperation, we can be armed and equipped by a truth from God rather than listening to that whispering lie of Satan. And lastly, look at me at the second half there of verse 11. They loved not their lives, even unto death. Wow, there's a, there's a kicker, isn't there? It was all going well. Then we've got martyrdom, we've got death. They were, they were even willing to die rather than to turn away from the truth of the gospel. But when we think more about it, when we think back through the gospel story, when we think of the story of Acts and the example of Stephen or of Christian history uh, from guys fed to lion or burnt at the stake or, or sadly recent examples like Yazidi Christians killed in Iraq and Syria by ISIS, we see that martyrdom has been a part of the story of the church all the way through, hasn't it? And why is that? Well, it's because for the Christian There is something far worse than physical death now. And that's drifting away to God through eternal death. So, the first two battles that we've seen, we can have absolute confidence about the outcome. However, that last one, to get you, well, the outcome is up to you, the the choice we face. Will you enter the battle and overcome Satan? by following and trusting the lamb, the lamb who took on the very worst that Satan had to offer and walked away unscathed. By following his example, we can have absolute confidence in the outcome. In a moment, I'm going to pray for us as we close. But before I do, let me give you a minute to think about your week ahead. Have a think about what action might you need to take this week to enter this battle, to fight This good fight, Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have confidence in your defeat of Satan and control of his power. Help us to be ready to play our part in the fight with eyes fixed ahead on the time to come when you'll wrap up all history and bring us perfectly to you. Amen.